You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 15th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. The world descends into the Swiss alpine town of Davos. So what are the big themes marking this year's World Economic Forum annual meeting? I'm Carlotta Rabello. And I'm Tom Webb. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you live from our studios here at Hub Culture Pavilion in Davos. I'm Tom Webb. And I'm Carlotta Rabello. Our guests Shirley Wu, Mirek Dushek and Stan Stonacker will discuss day one of the summit and take a look at what's in store for the rest of the week. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily and we're coming to you today from Davos, where this year's World Economic Forum annual meeting is taking place. Today marks day one of the proceedings. What are your thoughts so far, Tom? Personally speaking, because I was here last year in the cold, no press accreditation, being in the warm in our own dedicated Monocle studio, it's infinitely better than last year. So I'm very, very happy. It's also infinitely busier than last year. It's record attendance this year. It's been going since the 70s. So that is saying something. There are 60 heads of state that are arriving today and tomorrow. And according to the WEF website, there's 1,000 partner companies coming along as long as 2,700 people, as well as us, the media on the outskirts, and the public who have made their way up the mountain. Now, there is a gloomy agenda that's the backdrop of this discussion. There is the global conflict, the energy crisis, and also global recession is making itself known again. It did last year, but it didn't actually materialize. Will there be a global recession in 2024? A big talking point. But it is still very welcoming and warm in Davos. It's very optimistic. The houses are busy and warm. And we're having a wonderful time here in the sidelines. And in fact, we will be here all week broadcasting from our pop-up radio studio here at Hub Culture Chalet Pavilion in the Promenade, which is just across from the Congress Centre. Well, we'll be learning more about Hub Culture a bit later on in the programme. But first, we are here with Shirley Yu, the political economist and former China National Television news anchor. Hello, Shirley. Thanks for having me. Uh, Thank you for, first of all, trekking the snowstorm that's currently outside to come and join us here in our little studio. Um, Tom had to rescue you, I understand. I'm marketing it as a rescue because I ran out (laughs) with my coat in the driving snow and found you outside the Emirates house, which is a good talking point. What houses have you noticed that are different this year? What's popping up? Interesting. And uh, first of all, I may say not only, you know, it's an incredible honor for me to join you on day one of the 2024 World Economic Forum, but also uh, snowing on day one is always an ominous sign, according to the Chinese culture, at least. Uh, But uh, talking about uh, walking, I did walk few rounds on the promenade. It's always interesting to do a little bit of a field uh, investigation before the the meeting starts. Uh, This year, lots of AI houses, actually the the central spot on the promenade are almost all uh, houses that are uh, engaged in the AI industry. And also we are welcoming quite a few uh, houses from the Gulf region. Saudi Arabia is uh, is leading a huge delegation to the uh, World Economic Forum, but also uh, the UAE. India continues to uh, play a 
quite a significant role. ChatGPT was a rather new thing in January of 2023. The AI uh, growth and presence is truly phenomenal. I just wanted to mention India very quickly. It is having an election year. Are we seeing a big growth in that market? Oh, absolutely. I just traveled to India, actually on way to China. Can you believe uh, this, to me, manifests the global economic shift for someone who lives in the U.S. to travel back to China? There used to be many, many direct flights. But last year, in order for me to fly back to China, it was actually coincidentally more efficient for me to travel to New Delhi and via New Delhi back to Hong Kong. So uh, India is booming, uh, particularly uh, in the manufacturing sector. We see the uh, the manufacturing hub on showcase here right on the promenade. Again, uh, Bangalore, uh, the Silicon Valley of India is truly booming, uh, Boeing, uh, Apple, Apple supply chains, they are all moving there and moving very quickly. And I think by IMF's uh, estimate, by 2027, just four years away, India will surpass Japan as the world's third largest economy. And not only that, think about the global economic balance at that point. Three of the world's top five economies will be in Asia. Well, let's uh, continue now with the, one of the conversation points that is also here dominating the agenda and Davos. Tensions are escalating between the United States and China, particularly over the recent election in Taiwan, which drew Beijing's disapproval due to the newly elected president's party advocating for independence from China. Here at Davos, the American convoy is reportedly unsettled by the sizable Chinese delegation led by its premier, including 10 state ministers. Currently, no Chinese official was being made available to see the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, while he is here at Davos. So does this indicate that the US were hoping China would bring a smaller delegation or indeed not come at all? I cannot speak on behalf of the U.S. delegates, and they have right, or everybody has right to feel however they feel. But I may say, though, this is Davos has a legacy to be quite European-centric and globally inclusive. And I think it is a good thing to see many Chinese faces uh, in Davos this year. Uh, you and I would remember last year, there were hardly any Chinese faces, any resolving a lot of the global uh, economic and the energy conditions as uh, you have previously referred to. We cannot uh, imagine a world that would uh, ultimately come to the solutions of these issues without uh, having China as a part of it. How significant has the election in Taiwan been uh, as a backdrop for the US-China relations here at Davos happening just before the annual meeting kicked off? Right. Personally, I don't think the DPP's victory uh, is a surprise to China because all the polls leading to the election day indicated that it was going to be a closed race and the DPP's Dr. Lai had a, uh, a slight advantage uh, in the polling. So that should not come as a surprise. But also, interestingly, um, a lot of you know, the media has uh, cast concerns that uh, because of the DPP's third-term victory, um, that would lead Taiwan towards a path of uh, the jure independence. But uh, Dr. Lai, President-elect Lai himself, on the campaign trail, has expressed expressed clearly that uh, Taiwan does not seek 
de jure independence under his administration. And I think that is clearly a red line that Beijing uh, posited in this uh, cross-strait relations. And the other red line uh, Beijing has made clear is that uh, the United States and Taiwan cannot establish any sort of uh, de facto diplomatic relations. And I think uh, in the press conference when asked um, about the, the feedback on the Taiwan election, President Biden said simply the U.S. does not support Taiwan independence. And I think we can see from the leaders both in Taiwan and also in Washington, D.C., and their uh, respective uh, response, uh, in th their attitudes towards uh, cross-strait relations. I think the red lines are observed and respected. And I think given a looming uh, election in the United States in November, between now and November, I think uh, all sides will take a defensive posture, waiting and watching on uh, the, the election outcome in the United States in November. Speaking of crossing red lines, not stepping back. In fact, there were lots of speculations of aggressive postures as the outcome of the Taiwan election. It hasn't happened. But what would a blockade of Taiwan be for both the US and China's economy if it were to happen? As the Chinese president has repeatedly made clear that uh, it's always the preferred option for peaceful unification. And he's also made clear on the New Year address that uh, uh, unification with Taiwan is inevitable. However, um, no means are eliminated from the table, including military means. And of course, uh, the blockade option, as you have mentioned, is, uh, is not excluded either. That would be economically devastating for Taiwan, first of all. And it would be devastating for China because of the series of financial sanctions that could be potentially imposed on China itself. Uh, it'll be devastating to the global economy. So we don't want to foresee that the world would erode into uh, that kind of scenario. Uh, but I don't think it's likely, as long as the two red lines, as we talked about, uh, are respected in this relationship. Now, 2024 is a mammoth election year around the globe. Uh, um, the vast majority of the world's population will head to the polls at some point this year. So there's a lot of change that could be in the horizon compared to where we are now at the beginning of the year. Now, uh, there are other elections that could impact the US-China relationship, not least the United States election itself. What would a President Biden or a President Trump mean mm. for China? Interesting. I was just in China two weeks ago, and uh, this question was asked a lot. Um, President Biden, the current uh, China policy from the Biden administration is uh, summarized by the Chinese counterpart as uh, competition and managing competition. And I think that's pretty much right. Uh, you know, that's the Chinese response to what they how they interpret uh, policies from Washington, D.C. However, the, the policy itself is a little problematic in the sense that when uh, the, the U.S.'s China policy is competition and managing competition, what is the end goal of that competition? What would be the, the mark um, that suggests that the U.S. has won the competition? What would be the matrix? How to quantify 
the winning of the competition. I don't think any of these are clear. Uh, they are not going to be clarified uh, in the fourth year of uh, the first term of President Biden. And if uh, President Biden were to secure a second term, I think uh, the competition, managing competition, China policy would evolve into something a little bit more enduring and uh, more clearly defined. And when it comes to uh, President Trump, of course, I think uh, it's expected that he will uh, derail the democratic alliance that the current administration has uh, has tried very hard to establish. And I think in a way that may play to China's advantage. But at the same time, President, Biden, uh, President Trump, if he were to uh, you know, to win again in 24, he might go um, just single-handedly, you know, all out uh, with maximal pressure on China. He might uh, impose mounting sanctions in magnitudes of what China sees today. But another scenario that we haven't talked a lot about is that President Trump, uh, if there were term number two, um, he would probably impose maximal pressure on Taiwan as well to move the world's most advanced semiconductor manufacturing capabilities to the United States onshore. That means the three nanometer chips, which is currently not in the U.S. Um, the TSMC is currently in R&D phase of the one nanometer chips. Uh, a second term Trump administration might force Taiwan to move all these most advanced capabilities to the United States, and which may potentially derail U.S.-Taiwan relations as well. So um, from China's perspective, of course, this is the U.S. election. There are pros and cons to either president. Uh, it's going to be a transitory year. No doubt. Now, let's move on slightly. In the wake of US-China tensions, the supposed phenomena of deglobalization, decoupling from China, have been dominating the news, not just here in Davos, but all around the world. Chinese President Xi Jinping has warned Western states against decoupling from his country's economy, insisting amid declining foreign investment that China's development should be viewed as not a threat but an asset. So is the push from some Western politicians for de-risking towards China creating their own risks to their own economy and the global economy? Interesting. Uh, De-risk is actually a European uh, positive concept, and we have to give credit to the European uh, nations. But uh, when it comes to the practice of de-risking, it's harder than in theory. Uh, in the EV sector, for example, uh, currently the EU is investigating China's uh, EV subsidies uh, because of the extremely competitive cost structure. My, in looking at uh, the Chinese uh, technological development landscape, the EV did not become a global success overnight. Since China's Made in China 2025, which was, um, which was uh, established in 2015, it took uh, the EV sector eight years to become the world's most competitive and the world's biggest. And if... Uh, if we were to look at China's other competitive sectors, China, in both in terms of uh, the R&D's uh, quality and the amount of output, China is also globally competitive today in new materials, new energy, new telecommunications, some areas of aviation, some areas of AI. So if the European Union 
decides to uh, investigate and potentially impose uh, punitive tariffs on Chinese EV, just imagine all the other technological sectors that China is becoming very competitive in and perhaps building uh, enormous uh, commercial capacity in a few years' time. You can't stop one sector from entering the market. You cannot stop all sectors from entering the market. You can be reactive to the EV success, but you cannot be proactive before another Chinese technology becomes globally competitive. So my best choice, if um, if I were to to uh, think about it, you know the best competitive strategy for Europe, is perhaps not to stop the uh, the Chinese sectors that have become so strong, but rather to invest in uh, Europe's own technological innovation. Now, China enters 2024 confronting a series of deep structural economic challenges. Uh, the Chinese real estate market stalling being one of them. Um, have we seen the worst of it? I think we still have another three to five years uh, of slow growth ahead. If you were to look at the Japanese and the U.S. experience, uh, from peak to trough, it took Japan 13 years to reach the bottom of the real estate cycle, and that was from 1990 to 2003. In the U.S. experience, it took the U.S. five years to reach the trough of the real estate cycle from 2007 to 2012, and that was on the condition of do all what it can, uh, monetary policies from from the Fed, um, four rounds of QEs, etc. China is not doing aggressive monetary and the fiscal easing yet. And so if you were to look at the Chinese real estate cycle, the peak was somewhere around mid-2022. And so we are still the second year in the in the decline. So it's going to take uh, at least a couple more years for the real estate sector to bottom out. Finally then, a big question here in Davos. You mentioned the EV market. Will China likely weaponize net zero after quietly positioning itself as the crucial supplier of carbon neutral energy infrastructure? I don't think so. China has developed enormous access capacity in renewable energy. China owns about 70% of the global solar supply chain, over 55% of the global wind supply chain, and uh, a dominant position in global lithium battery productions, all of which cannot be absorbed by the domestic economy itself. So it inevitably has to globalize uh, exported supply chains to the rest of the world. So it is in China's interest. It wouldn't do China any good if China were to sanction uh, its own essentially quintessential uh, supply chains in the renewable energy sector. Shirley Yu, thank you so much for joining us. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle Radio. With political and business leaders meeting today here in Davos against a backdrop of war in Gaza and Ukraine, plus concern over the world economy, how can you put together an agenda that facilitates and promotes constructive dialogue? As the gates first opened this morning, I got the very first interview with Mirek Dushek, Managing Director of the World Economic Forum. Responsible for global programming as well as the strategy and the organisation of the annual meeting here in Davos, I began by asking him about the theme of this year's forum. 
The theme is rebuilding trust, which is a direct response to the erosion of trust that is evident in societies and among nations, and that some would directly link to uh, the deep transformations that we're seeing all around us, be they geopolitical, economic, societal, or those related to climate and nature. And that some would even say that those transformations taken together have ushered in, if not a uh, completely new era, at least a very stark new reality. So this week we are gathering over 3,000 leaders from all walks of life from around the world to think through what are the partnerships, business strategies, policies, but also intellectual frameworks that we need to effectively deal with this new reality. How do you reach the theme for the forum? What is the process behind it? So we work with many what we call communities, be they, for example, leaders of civil society organizations or, of course, also leaders within uh, different industries as well as people that are in government. And what is important about the annual meeting is that it is a milestone. It is a meeting, it is a summit, but it is a milestone in the ongoing work that we have throughout the year with these different communities. If I were to put a number on it, at least 80% of the different deliberations that we're holding here this week are actually connected intimately to that ongoing work that we have with these uh, different communities. So the theme has really then come from that consultation process uh, throughout the year. But of course, also in the remaining 20%, we are also a platform at the beginning of the year to respond and reflect on uh, the latest developments, particularly on the geopolitical front. And so, of course, here we will have a lot of leaders, a lot of heads of state and government, foreign ministers. So there will be a lot of focus on uh, the ongoing war in Ukraine, of course, the tragic violence in the Middle East and other geopolitical developments. So mentioning the conflicts, how do you avoid getting bogged down in the doom and gloom of the events? So I think it's important to realize when I spoke about the geopolitical transformation that we are really in a different environment when it comes to the international architecture, which is arguably more competitive. And so it is very important that we get practical about how to get things done in this more competitive environment. So this is really at the core of our approach, at least to the dialogues here. So we are not underestimating the disagreements and the sensitivities of these issues. But for example, on climate, on trade and on other issues, energy transition that really needs to be resolved frankly, urgently, we are trying to see, okay, given that we have a more competitive environment geopolitically, but what are the tools that we either have had in the past or the new tools that we need to actually get things done? And you are seeing that happening as well. Look at trade and how MC12, which was the last ministerial that was held last year, still achieved good results in some unexpected areas as well. Now you have MC13 coming up in uh, the UAE soon. So trade, there are leaders, including, of course, Dr. Ngozi at the WTO that are getting very practical and are very solution uh, oriented. And similarly on climate, we saw it at COP28 in the UAE. So that spirit will be very um, palpable here also uh, at the annual meeting. We have also released a new intellectual product called Global Cooperation Barometer, where we're trying to take a look through some data on uh, what is the state of cooperation. And there we introduce this term coopetition, 
which actually we borrow from the business world, where you still have companies that, of course, compete, compete for customers elsewhere, but they are able also in certain areas to cooperate. So we're trying to bring this also into the geopolitical world, if you will. And speaking of cooperation, let's get a sense of the logistics behind this event. It's day one. We've had a very, very good experience coming up the mountain, getting into the chalets. How do you put on something of this scale with so many VIPs, so high, so cold in the middle of January? Well, there is a very special atmosphere here at the annual meeting. As you know, this is our tradition to gather here at the beginning of the year and this gathering goes back to the 70s, where it was really a uh, retreat to talk about the economy among researchers and academics. And of course, it has grown and uh, became a really a major platforms to gather all stakeholders of society to talk about and, and actually act on some of the key issues on the global agenda. We have participants, of course, also arriving, for example, by train. We will have a few also heads of state that are going to be arriving on train, which is a very uh, scenic journey you may have seen yourself. So it is, of course, quite complex to organize, but we also can build on the strong tradition and, of course, also on the great cooperation we have with the city of Davos. And very quickly, have you got a sense of how this year is different from the next? Are you seeing a greater media presence? Are you seeing more people showing an interest? In terms of the participation, it is one of the records once that we've seen over the past years. I mentioned, of course, the political leaders. We have President Zelensky here in person, Chinese Premier, President Macron, France, and I could go on and on. There are over 60 heads of state and government here. But also to say that we have a lot of attention, a lot of interest from business leaders that are here in record numbers. We also have a very strong cohort, for example, of AI researchers and innovators within the AI sector. We will have a special focus on AI and advanced technologies and how they impact society and the economy, which is another strong feature of the program this year. So this is together with the geopolitical picture, of course, the economy, and not to forget really looking at climate, nature, and energy as one system that is connected. Those would be the four themes that we would be looking at here this week. Merit Dushek speaking to me earlier today. You're listening to the Monocle Daily. You're listening to the Monocle Daily. I'm Carlotta Babello. And I'm Tom Webb. So at the top of the program, we mentioned we are broadcasting live from the Hub Culture Chalet Pavilion, which is part of the Hub Culture Davos Leadership Campus. And I'm thrilled to say joining us right now here in the studio is Stan Starnaker, founder and chief strategy officer of Hub Culture. Thank you so much for popping in. Hey there. How you doing? Very, very good. We're loving being in your beautiful chalet, a even more fantastic venue than last year, we think. How is it for you? You know, it's been so exciting. We've been uh, using the chalet quietly for private meetings the last couple of years. But this year, um, we've really been able to move in in a big hub way and uh, make it the new kind of node of uh, activity for our epicenter. We have six locations across Davos that are part of the leadership campus. But the home and heart um, has moved from a smaller space on the other side of the secure zone, the south side, to the edge of the north side of the security zone. And we think of uh, these two sides of uh, Davos uh, in terms of galaxies. So 
the Milky Way galaxy is the promenade where everybody kind of knows and loves so many activities happening. And then um, that's on the south side leading down to Davos Plots. And then the north side has been traditionally a little bit quieter, but it's a really exciting place for the future because Davos is growing in the context of what Davos and WEF is. And so there's new opportunities on this side in, in this new galaxy. So we call this side Andromeda and it's, you know, the Andromeda galaxy is very old and it's on a collision course with the Milky Way. So we wanted to take that metaphor into this beautiful side of Davos and this beautiful new place. So speaking of newness and new moments, we met you last year and you had a fairly sizable announcement. It's been a year since said announcement. And I feel like there might be more to add in 2024. Well, you know, I'm really happy to talk about... Um, the joke that my staff and my team are constantly making fun of me about, which is Zeke, our AI, and it's Z-E-K-E dot AI. And Zeke, uh, we started in 2017. And if for anybody who knows much about, you know, the hype around AI, there are so many things that you could go down this rabbit hole to talk about. Um, but what are the fears? What are the opportunities of the future of AI? What are the practicalities of what AI can do? And of course, over the last year, we've seen this massive change in the the way that people think about AI and our own ability to use it. And so last year at Davos, we announced um, a big upgrade. You know, we started in 2017 and we were wor working on a certain type of, you can think of it like an education system for training our AI that was very unique and very slow. It was almost a very manual process because we're not the smartest company in the world. You have Google and Meta and Facebook and, um, you know, all these people building, you know, billion dollar AIs. And so how do you build a billion dollar AI when you don't have a billion dollars? This is only something Hub would try to do. Um, but what we do have is something very unique, which is uh, the oldest online social network. We have the oldest digital currency. We have the most comprehensive digital identity. And all of these things form the basis of what we think of as Hub as a virtual country. And so in many ways... Um, the AI is being trained and evolved to be the guardian of that country. And so in my world, in the meta world, I think that in the future, militaries and AIs will merge. And there's a lot of kind of deep thought we could talk about with regard to that. But let's just say in the next 20 to 30 years, every military will evolve into an AI, in my opinion. And so us as a virtual country need to be thinking about that way. But it's not really about like aggression. It's really more about protection and enablement. And when we think about the organizing principles of an AI, um, our decision has been to try to optimize our AI toward nature and toward culture. And these are two very important organizing principles. The West is organizing its AIs toward money. They're all optimized for money. In China, it's you could kindly say it's being optimized for loyalty. So imagine that the party will probably evolve into an AI over time. And then, you know, in Saudi and in other places, there's talk about building an Islamic AI, something that can serve the needs of 1.2 billion people who subscribe to that religious um, view. And so when we were thinking about this, we were like, what does Hub's AI need to optimize for? And we wanted to optimize for nature and for culture. So last year, we announced a bunch of improvements to the AI where it became conversant and conversational. It became the first AI in the world to join the faculty of a university with Arizona State. Um, and it was a really amazing Davos for Zeke because we were showcasing the technology for the first time. It went live minutes before like the presentation. Um, this year, what we're doing is expanding that and 
it's really the first step in a project that has been under wraps for a year called Andromeda. And Andromeda is largely imaginary at the moment. And so it's fun to be able to talk about it because it's still being established. But the idea of Andromeda is that the AI will learn to absorb memories from our members and then to be able to process those memories into many little metaverses and then stitch those metaverses together tied to geolocation that we call star points. So the idea is that you would go to a star point anywhere, create a bit of content, an image, some words, and geolocate it to that location and give it to Zeke. And then Zeke will dream from that information and create something for you. And then as all these dreams from the AI get stitched together, we'll eventually be able to build uh, a user-generated metaverse that our members will be able to enjoy as a digital value layer moving from physical reality into the metaverse. The first step of Andromeda is to enable Zeke to recognize each member of Hub Culture and to build its own personal relationship with each member. So what we're really happy about is that this week, Zeke is for the first time able to talk to you and remember you as an individual within the community and you're able to build your own personal relationship with the AI. And hopefully this week, we'll be able to showcase the first images. So you'll be able to feed images and content, and then Zeke will be able to begin to create images. Soon that will move into video, and then from video into three-dimensional. Now, one thing that I, uh, is, of course, everyone is talking about here is the main theme of this year, which is rebuilding trust. Uh, this is a theme happening at the forum. And touching upon what you were just saying, Stan, I'm curious if for you, conversations about building trust in a digital sense are perhaps what you're looking out for, or are there other side conversations happening that inform a lot of the work happening here um, with you? Because when we talk about rebuilding trust, people immediately go to the conflicts that are happening around the world. But this idea of trust in the digital sense is also quite important. It's super important. We just had a conversation this morning at the Ice House on the subject of uh, equitable sustainability. And this is a theme that we almost landed on in Climate Week in New York. Uh, and then it expanded at COP28 at the hub in Dubai. And then we thought, okay, we need to bring this conversation into here. And so equitable sustainability is essentially an evolving concept. We're trying to learn to understand it ourselves. But the bottom line that we're at so far in terms of the themes are that in this context of the forum's theme, rebuilding trust, within that, sustainability is pretty important, but equitability is necessary. And this, the conclusion is that uh, sustainability isn't sustainable without a movement towards improving equity and equitability. And this has never been something that's been necessarily part of the sustainability conversation. And that reflects back or kind of boomerangs back to this rebuilding trust concept because the reality is, is that a lot of trust has been fractured um, because of the serfdoms that have existed. So this morning I had this amazing, I don't know, I'm probably the last person to have it, but this brainwave about, we've always been thinking about surfing the internet, right? And so web one was about surfing the internet, S-U-R-F. But Web 2 has been about surfing the internet. We're all surfs in digital fiefdoms controlled by seven people. And so we've gone from surfing the internet 
to surfing the internet. And so for Web3, how do we surf the internet? And I'm still trying to think of what SIRF or something is going to be to, to indicate this idea that we're all going to co-own it. We're all going to have levels of transparency. We're all going to have levels of accountability. Because remember, trust isn't just like a benefit. Trust is also based on responsibility. The reason someone trusts you is because you deserve to be trusted. And if you don't deserve to be trusted, um, you know, you, you aren't trusted, right? And so this idea of the responsibility side of trust, I think is super important. The reason people don't trust some of the institutions, some of the corporations, some of the people who lead us is because they're not doing trustworthy things. And so you know, I think we have to really break that and we have to think about the re- the reality of the new world and make sure that we build transparency and accountability into trust. And remember that if you want to be trusted, you have to be responsible. And finally, then we mentioned the different themes each year and we see new houses pop up along the promenade, including AI House. How can Davos evolve? How can it remain a relevant forum in the future? You know, one of my friends said to me um, last week, we were talking before, because, you know, it's funny, there's like a whole little group of people who are a month before just on the phone with each other, like, what's happening? What's going on? And a friend of mine said to me, like, are you going to the festival? And I'm like, what do you mean? And she's like, well, you know, Davos is a festival now. And I was like, oh, don't tell that to the forum. Um, But, you know, the reality is, is, you know, for many years, in in many ways, we helped start that. But there has been this tipping point pendulum of inside the forum, outside the forum. And of course, outside the forum would not exist without inside the forum. So I always say like, take care of the golden goose, right? The forum is the reason that brings everybody here. And the power and influence of the forum remains really super important. But from an innovation standpoint and from a co-creation standpoint, it's all happening outside on the streets, in the pavilions, in the spaces that people gather and connect. And so I think right now we've come to a beautiful evolution of Davos. But I think that in the long run, Davos, the idea, is beginning to outweigh the forum, the process. Now, from a real change standpoint and from a guidance standpoint, the forum is the guiding light and the beacon that sets the agenda. And their ability to enable the rest of the co-creation around it to happen I think is really to be commended. They've done an amazing job because you have to remember, like this costs a lot to produce. The Swiss military, the Swiss government, the forum, they're spending millions and millions and millions of dollars to enable conversation to improve the state of the world. Around the fringes of that are the people working to improve the state of the world in their own way. And to enable that is important. In terms of the evolution, I think that Um, we'll see the next five years, the Andromeda side of Davos is going to explode and there's going to be so much new things. And then, you know, I'm looking for metaverse Davos. When is it possible for everyone to be in Davos regardless of where you are physically? Stan Starnacker, thank you so much. And that is all for this special edition of the Monocle Daily. A big thanks to our guest today, Shirley Yu, Merrick Dushek, and of course, Stan Starnacker. Today's show was produced by Chrissy O'Grady here in Davos, and our sun engineer back in London was Tamsin Howard. The Monocle Daily will be back tomorrow from Davos at the same time. If you're in town, come and say hi to us in our pop-up radio studio at the Hub Culture Chalet Pavilion. I'm Carlotta Rabello. And I'm Tom Webb. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. 